0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the SaaS Marketing Show in 2021. I'm very excited for this one today. So today we are interviewing a guy called Steve potcross who is the CEO at a company called Verblio. And so Verblio is a content creation platform that powers modern content marketers and agencies. They basically create over... 70,000 pieces of unique content each year for thousands of companies and today we're talking specifically about how Steve and his team have scaled a SaaS content marketplace hitting 50% year-over-year growth every year uh, without having to take any external funding and remaining completely bootstrapped. We talk about some of his strategies behind how they've done that, how they utilize a blue apron strategy to their services approach Uh, And also, we talk a little bit about the benefits of personalization solutions and how to implement them into your strategy effectively. So this is a good episode. I know you're going to enjoy it. Um, Just being totally transparent right now, we have been a little bit behind on uploads for the SaaS Marketing Show, Um, but I promise you from this episode moving forward, you will have at least one episode every single week. It's going to be every single Monday. We'll be releasing a new episode. Um, the reason we've been a little bit slow is that, to be honest with all of you, Hey Digital, which is my paid advertising agency where we focus on supporting SaaS and B two B technology businesses with paid ads, creative, and CRO, um, we've just been having a we've been having a great time. We've been growing pretty aggressively over the last few months. Um, now a team of eleven, which is awesome. And um, the podcast kind of fell behind a little bit, but now we've made sure we have some great systems built out. I actually just had a fantastic guy join my team called Max, who's going to be our content marketing manager. And he's going to ensure that we're not only um, on schedule every single week with this podcast, but that we will be creating lots of content off the back of it over on LinkedIn. So if you're not already following me on LinkedIn, go ahead and search for Dylan Hay on LinkedIn right now or the SaaS marketing show. And then one last thing to share before we hit play on today's episode um, is just thanking our sponsor again. So we've been very fortunate that Restream have stuck with us since the very beginning of launching this show. I think they were sponsoring within the first like two months or month of launching. Um, So we have to thank them. Uh, If you are thinking about how in 2021 you can get closer to your audience, how you can do a little bit more than just a webinar or just a um, an interview session or just another piece of content on your blog, you really should consider live content and utilizing a platform like Restream makes it super, super simple and straightforward to broadcast content live directly from your browser to 30 different social networks at the same time. So they're used by companies like Cisco, IBM, Microsoft. Over 8 million live streams every single month. They they raised a big round of financing towards the end of last year, $50 million. Um, some great things coming up in their product too. So if you're thinking about going live, check out Restream. You can go to my special link, which is Restree.am forward slash Dylan. reestree.am forward slash Dylan. And if you sign up using that link, you'll have a $10 credit added into your account. Um, they do have a free plan, but that $10 will... credit will sit there in case you ever decide to upgrade so that's a big thank you to Restream Uh, excited for more great SaaS sponsors to come on board this year really excited for you to hear this first episode of 2021 so I hope you enjoy it and if you do go ahead and leave a a rating or if you're feeling extra kind a review in the podcast app of your choice enjoy this one welcome
1: to today's show Cool. Dylan, thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, no problem. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. When you and your team originally reached out, we were just talking before we hit record about how I was interested to see what life is like at a SaaS content marketplace, as I'm sure it's ever so slightly different to maybe some of the more stereotypical SaaS businesses that we bring on the show. And and also talking to the CEO rather than the VP of marketing or the marketing lead I'm really keen to to hear a bit more about how you operate and the success that you've seen at Verblio. Today, we're, we're going to talk specifically about how you have scaled this SaaS content marketplace and hit and constantly hitting 50% year over year growth. But before we do that, maybe you could just tell us a little more about Verblio for the people listening, because I know you have a very interesting story remaining bootstrapped so far and providing so much content to so many people around the world. Do you want to just give a quick rundown so people listening can get an idea of where you guys are at as a business right now?
1: Sure. The skinny on Verblio is uh, we've been around for actually 10 years. I was founded by a journalist and a technical co-founder, which brought a lot of the spirit and the culture into the company of being founded by a journalist versus a normal kind of business route of what's the market opportunity The journalist was really looking for, how do I find opportunities for all of my unemployed journalist friends who are going to need to find employment in the next economy? And that spirit really felt came with the company. They were reaching out for a new CEO in 2016 as they was a really enlightened CEO founder who decided that this was the point where scaling was, was not his bailiwick. And so he said his ideal size company to manage is three people. And they were already way past that. So they brought me on four years ago to try to to invent and ignite the second wave of growth for the company. The company itself is a content creation marketplace. And what that means, translation, is uh, it's really two parts of the company. You and all of your audience understand SaaS deeply. That's what you're all about. SaaS has been around for 20 years since the Salesforce revolution really started it. And I think the big deep understanding is if you really go deep into a work type, get to know that better, you can and provide it in the cloud in a really flexible, scalable way, you can provide unique value to, in a B2B world. What the marketplace component is, eventually you're gonna to have to read most SaaS companies try to eliminate people in the 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 skilled labor piece of it, to try to focus only on SaaS. And I think that's for two reasons. One is it's really painful to manage a lot of people. The skilled labor talent piece of it is just really excruciating. And the second is that investors don't like you the second that you add humans to your platform. And so the marketplace has a ton of value for me and I believe for a lot of companies. So if you have a highly curated crowd, and so we have about a thousand active writers right now, we're actually culling that number down more actively, trying to find the right size balance of our marketplace. So we have a thousand proven writers that we all have deep confidence in. They're available to you. They're segmented in 40 different industries and they can write uh, highly high quality content for every niche at scale. We think the combination of that marketplace and the SaaS platform together can offer unique value moving forward. And I think you're already seen in areas like development, design, and I think it's going to be a next wave of of kind of business innovation.
0: Do you so I just touching on that point too, I'm in of course like all of the SaaS communities online. Like there's a lot of SaaS specific groups on Facebook and LinkedIn and these other platforms. And of course getting to speak to a lot of SaaS like marketing leads and founders every single week. It's it's really interesting to see I don't necessarily see SaaS as an industry, right? Because within SaaS, there's so many multitudes of, okay, SaaS platforms for all these different industries, et cetera. But one thing I have been seeing more of recently is people introducing more of these people some people call them productized services almost. Like right? and and marketplaces becoming more and more popular. So I'm really fascinated by how that will continue to develop. Obviously, like you guys have been around for a for a long time now. It's not like a, a completely new thing for for you. But I'm interested as to how you find the the balance too between being a marketplace, right? Like ha- acquiring those writers and then also acquiring customers and and users. It sounds like right now you're not going through the acquisition stage for for writers. You said you're, you're culling that down a little bit, but is that something that is, it, is it a constant ongoing kind of battle, or not battle, but a challenge for you guys as to how you keep that supply and demand in the right way? Is that something that you have to spend a lot of time on as the lead of this business and the team are focusing on also, or is that not something that comes up for you?
1: I think... So I get asked that question a lot, and I think it's a really good question, but the answer might surprise you, which is we spend very little time balancing our supply and demand. The supply of great talent that will that is wants to work from home on, our, on, a, on their timeline when they're available, on the type of work they want to work on, there are so few opportunities for these people that you can find amazing talent if you can figure out who you want to have available, how to schedule them, and how to give them access to work. We accept four and a half percent of the writers that apply to us, and we don't even market to the writer community. So for me, the biggest challenge right now is one is making sure that these writers are up to our quality levels, and giving the clients the opportunity to engage them in a way that makes that's a good fit. Uh, and the second is creating really high value, motivated work opportunities for the writers. If we create those, they find the other great writers, and so it's actually the the I've now worked in seven of these startups that focus on marketplace and SaaS together, and I've never once had a challenge creating the supply of great labor. Always, the challenge has been on the curation side and finding the clients to drive demand, and figure and letting the clients know that there's a lot more value here if I if you can if you want to access a service like this.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. With our focus on today being how how you guys are scaling this marketplace and how you. Hitting 50% year over year growth. Has that some of those numbers and what we're going to talk about? Is that since you stepped in? What's the comparison time here? Like, I, I'm interested because when, when I'm going to start asking you some of these questions, right? How you've done that, what are some of the initiatives that you're working on? I, I want to figure out is this something that has been one of the big levers since you've come into the business over the last few years, or where were you guys at before we start talking about, okay? 50% year over year growth. Has that been constant recently or what's
1: yeah. Is 50% good? I don't know. So the 50% number may or may not be impressive to you, depending on if you're VC backed or if you're bootstrapped. So we have $0 of investment. So we get to own our own fate, but it also means that we don't get to hit the pedal to the metal nearly as fast. We can't just say we'd like to be 300% growth. All we need is your VC money to buy advertising. And so the glory meant the The glory metric is that we started in, so I took over in 2016, we are a $2 million business. We will exit this year at an $8 million run rate in four years. And so that's 400% growth in four years. 2019 was a 50% growth year. This year we were planning to be 50% again. We ran into a little thing called COVID economic crisis, race crisis, election crisis that many of you might have dealt with as well. We're exiting the year at 30% growth for the year, which I am pretty happy with as well. Yeah. So that's our growth rate. And then how we went about it, it was pretty pretty logical. So when you're a bootstrap company, you make incremental bets. You can't make wild, crazy bets. You have to basically say, here's the things that are going to drive the needle. And then you work on them with relentless execution and dedication to making them work. And so I feel like most strategy and marketing uh, conversations are all about that 1% of your time, you make a big inflection point decision. This is what business school was like for me too. But 99% of the reason that it works is relentless execution every single day, making great decisions and consistently getting the marketing out there with the right message to the right people at the right time.
0: Yeah. And I, I really love having conversations with, so as you've seen, as people listening to this show know, we have a variety of different businesses on. A lot of them, of course, have been VC backed, but we have, we have of course, bootstrap businesses too. And to be honest, like I I always find the, the conversations with the bootstrapped marketers and founders, to be more practical for a lot of people listening to this show, because for example, if you are the drifts of the world who we've had on, or some of these other large businesses that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars in funding, it's almost like, and, and there's no disrespect to them because we work like as an agency who manages paid ads for SaaS companies. Like we work with a lot of those businesses too. And so it's very, it's always very interesting from a practical marketing perspective. A lot of the time, The smarter marketers or the smarter, in my opinion, anyway, speaking from my opinion, the smarter marketers or the more practical people are often the ones that have either worked within or come from a successful bootstrap business because at that point, there's just less there's less margin for error. There's more risk, right? Of course, when, you have, when you're VC backed and you have investors breathing down your neck all the time, it's often a lot more stressful environment in some cases. Like I've been through that at previous companies I worked for and with the clients that we work with now. I, I, it's always easy to spot, okay, who's raised funding and who hasn't. You just look at how stressed out the person is that you're speaking to on a daily basis. But if I find one of the reasons I was really excited to chat with you, I know you, not to say you downplayed yourself, but you made this one comment earlier about, oh, I don't know if 50% is that impressive to some people but to me it really is especially given the fact that everything the decisions that you guys make it's all self-funded it's all self-sufficient sustainable like you have to be to, to see that growth you have to be very intelligent with how you've done things and so that's why I'm really keen to find out like what some of those levers are so maybe we can run through some of those things because you said it's like identifying the smartest opportunities or the opportunities where with just consistent work that you'll know that these are going to work out or you're you're hopeful that these are going to work out. So what's your process on either over the last four years or even right now as to how you identify those core areas to focus on? Because a lot of people listening to this show are earlier stage SaaS founders who are looking to these kind of people that have already seen the success as say, okay, How do I do that? Where do I begin? So I'd love to hear from you what your process is as a team for, okay, identifying some of these areas and then what you have done or do to then take the actions that help you drive that growth.
1: Cool. I'd be happy to. I've been thinking about how to structure this conversation because, you know, you do stuff for four years and let me just start with the concept of strategy. We all start with our strategy and we think this is the best opportunity for something to work. And then when it does work out, there's this moment of amazement of, wow, I can't believe what I thought of really did work. So it's like a, it's like when somebody asks you to walk you through their resume and then it all makes total sense. And you're like, "It these were not logical steps. So I'm going to tell you how we were thinking about it. And the first stage of what I did when I first came in as a CEO, which I think was really similar to what you would do as a new product leader, a business division leader. So it's not specifically to the CEO role. And then how we revamped it. First of all, I came in, the first thing I did was bring in my right-hand person. I've been working with Paul Zaluski, and for at seven different companies now for over the last 15 years. And you just can't tackle something like this alone. You have to have a great team. There's so many processes, product, and people that you need to make decisions on. So some of it just needs to be subconscious and you need to move it. There's the famous business book, The Speed of Trust, you're never going to get all of these things. And I think people always say that culture beats strategy. I think culture eats strategy and culture also eats process is one of my beliefs. If you have great people, you don't have to worry about some of these core things. So we thought about a lot of these things together. The first step was where's the vision and where's the company at currently? And what we found was a really commoditized marketplace. So if you look at the MarTech landscape, have you looked at the the MarTech 5,000, the MarTech 10,000, you can't even find a logo in there. You can't bring one out because it's such a crowded space. And particularly for content, it had been so commoditized. And most of it had started five years earlier when the goal of content was to put words on a page, Google ranked you for it and paid you back. And so the incentive structure was not towards quality. It was not towards brand and telling a story and everything had changed in six years, but the industry had not. And so the first you evaluate everything that you have available, which is, uh, I call this the moving into the founder's house syndrome. So first of all, founders are unbelievably courageous people who Go against all realms of sanity to create something that had never been done before when everyone tells them it's physically not possible. Bring something into creation and then give it to you to run. So I have the deepest respect for my founders for doing something I could never do. The second is I move into their house, which is, reminds me of when I moved into my first apartment in San Francisco and we took over from this nineteen this polish couple that had lived there since the 1940s and all of the wall it had wallpaper and it was mustard color and there were sconces on the wall and there was carpet in the background bathroom and you're like all of this has to change but I can't change all of it immediately so where do I start and somebody has to paint a vision for you so the real estate agent gives me this picture of what the home looks like when it's completely rebuilt and beautiful and I go with that and so I think that coming into a company and starting your marketing plan and your vision is very similar to that. You look at where you want to end up and you have to make your incremental decisions on how to get there. All right. That was my long parable before I actually get into the to the valuable information. So the first thing we looked at is we had to reinvent the industry, which was most of the industry had been stuck on the concept of speed and low cost as And the classic iron triangle pyramid saying you're allowed to have speed, cost or high quality, but you can only have two of them. And our premise of our rebuilding the company was you can have all three and we need to think of a better model to deliver that. The second was that our brand was completely was just no longer valuable for the marketplace. So the brand was called BlogMutt at the time. uh, And the only problems with that were the blog part and the mutt part. And the reason for that is that it was focused on small businesses and being an everyday marketplace platform. So we had to reinvent what our brand was, but you can't do that without a product. Uh, the people were the, the classic, what the, what got you here won't get you there. So the really scrappy, innovative people who just killed themselves to get us to that point. We needed a lot more expertise and a different level of skill and processes. I already told you there were none. So we had no strategic roadmap. The gifts that we did have were an insane amount of organic traffic. Our journalist founder had written five blogs a day for six straight years. That was the one thing he made sure happened every day. And we had sick organic traffic. We were getting a thousand clients every year, basically, without putting any investment into marketing. Bless his soul. We had a subscription revenue model where we were one of the few in the industry that were not selling one-off pieces. We were Thinking of ourselves much more like, if you want to have effective SEO, you do it every single month and you invest in subscription level. So I had recurring revenue and didn't have to worry about that. And the third was I had an incredible tech team that had built a, a core platform. Uh, and the fourth was a really innovative business model that really flipped the, const- the ex- existing business model on its head, which was, how do you find a great writer? You go look at their profile, you see what they look like, you see some of their other stuff. And ours was, and then you have to match yourself to them. And our model was, we think marketplaces work better if the writers match y- themselves to you, and they have all the risk. So they only get credit if you accept their piece, and we don't want to give them, we, we, we want to balance those incentives. But they're highly motivated to do, and that they will write better pieces for you. We'll put feedback into that system, and we'll create a team of writers as opposed to individuals. And all of those were really a blessing. So all in sum is what I learned was instead of focusing on marketing, we will make a really incremental bet on marketing, which was change the pricing page. So we convert more of clients that are the traffic that's coming to us, turn them into clients because the way that this industry was priced is just not very helpful. So help guide them along the customer journey. Two is to offer the professional services they need because we weren't offering professional services at the time to both increase our value of every customer, but also make them stay longer. Those were our two big bets. And the third big bet was not to focus on marketing and sales at all, to focus everything on the product, because our biggest need was to rebrand and focus on digital agencies or acquire new market. And we couldn't even do that until the product was better. So I had all of my marketing focuses, like 90% of it focused on improving the product till it was at a level that we could actually rebrand so I'll give a pause to my long story and talk about phase two after
0: that's great yeah thank you for sharing I'll let you take a big swig of water and breathe for air as well that's one thing I always forget like being a podcast host I feel like it's the easiest thing because you just ask a question then sit and wait and listen and interject where it makes sense to do but when I when I guest on a podcast I forget how how much you end up talking I know it sounds really silly but when I last did a guest interview I was like I forgot that i needed to make sure i had an extra cup of water so, uh, so i was good and i remember just slow down every so often thank you for for sharing i have a few questions i'm not sure if some of this may come into the kind of phase two point that you're going to talk about too but i'm really interested you you touched on towards the end there about for example introducing the professional services element to what you guys offer but then also i don't i, I think you introduce this, but I'm not too sure whether this was something you introduced or not. But I, I'm looking at the notes that were shared with me and then my notes I've taken on the Verblio like website about something I wanted to discuss with you. And and that is adding on, I don't know if you see these as professional services or something different, but for example, you have the Verblio basic, but then you have the photo or the optimized where it's like an additional fee. For example, for anyone that's listening to this, that isn't on the Verblio like website right now, the photo is the Verblio basic plus hand-selected stock photos that complement the content that's being written. And then you have a number of other areas like that, which obviously big value adds and additions to revenue, like getting more money from your customers. Is that something that you introduced? Because I would love to talk a bit more about that as I I see this being a spot where other SaaS businesses could see some very easy, quick wins for both revenue, but also for their customers as well.
1: Now, that's exactly right. So that was the absolute key was figuring out how to package this up as a solution. We I often say that we wanted to, we found that the industry really looked like Costco, where if your goal was to create a home-cooked meal, you had a membership and had to walk in the store and figure out everything and nobody was obliging to do. And we want to be much more like the home delivery services like Blue Apron that brings something directly to your door. Everything's prepackaged and it makes you accomplish your goal. And first of all, the results, which was We focused just on improving our pricing page, converting more of these and offering more services. And that gave us our 30% growth that funded all the rest of our growth. And that was a great way to de-risk it. We just took our existing traffic. We offered them a better solution and they wanted to do more. So the way that we think of it is I think of the different stages of what you need for content. So before you, there's three different. Maybe four stages. Phase one, content strategy. What am I going to write about? How often do I write it? Who do I write it for? Stage two is the content creation piece, which was the only place that we played at the time, which was having a writer create it, an interacting with a writer. The third is enhancing that content and making it as digestible and interesting as possible. And that's photos, videos, design, the pieces that just make content more attractive. And it's been proven time and time again the more interactive it is, the more people will read your stuff. Fourth is distribution. Where do you send it out? How do you get there? And then you analyze and go back to the beginning. So we were only playing in one space. We moved into, so the pieces that you choose when you now come to our platform, the big piece was first to put them into five categories of the size of content. We found that your average client has no idea what a 300 word piece is versus a 1500 word. So to guide them into these five packages, as opposed to say, what word length would you like? What are you going for? We say, this is like a mini ebook versus this is a short five paragraph blog. The second is the frequency. How often a month do you want to to publish? The third is the enhancements that you're talking about, which is photo and video. We'll be adding design soon. Then you choose your professional services. And so basically, do you want to run this all yourself? Originally, we were a self-service marketplace and we found as we moved more upscale, more of our clients wanted us to run the marketplace for them. And that had a lot of value for both sides. And that's it's highly labor intensive and a lot of the reason that SaaS doesn't go into it. But we also found that companies couldn't plug into our ecosystem without that. And then the fifth choice is annual pricing versus monthly to try to lock in more accounts, which we've tried to drive as much as humanly possible with the high churn rates that come with working with SMBs.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting because there's also a couple of like SaaS Hard, like hardcore SaaS companies that come to mind for me, like stereotypical SaaS businesses that even just recently have made some additions to their service offering that are complementary to what they do that have led to. Them being able to increase pricing. Like one, one that comes to mind. So I'm originally from England. You can probably tell that I live in Estonia now, in like in the Baltic area. And so one of the big companies here is a company called Pipe Drive, the CRM system pipe drive. And so I, I actually don't use Pipe Drive anymore, but we used to use Pipe Drive. And so I know that they very recently, like last year, they they introduced a new add-on, which was called their lead booster, which was like a, basically like a live chat functionality that integrates directly within Pipedraft. so Instead of having to use other lead live chat tools and then zip, port it across, they, they introduce their own. And that was an additional pricing point. And then just recently, they've partnered with the SaaS company that I used to work for called Leadfeeder to introduce, basically, I don't know exactly how it's working, but it looks to me like they're just white labeling Leadfeeder's solution and adding in, and it's like a website visitor identification. Um, so now within your CRM system, you can also see, okay, from the leads, like who's visited our website, what pages have they been on and filter that information through. And the reason I'm bringing these two up is because I'm just looking and and was looking previously this episode about how they increase their pricing with that. So for example, with Pipedrive, if you want to add on the new web visitor add-on, it's an additional 41 euros per month to your subscription. And when looking at the Pipedrive pricing right now, their standard pricing, they have three or four different tiers from 12 euros 50 a month to 99 euros a month but adding on 40 41 euros is like a really significant win for them even if a very small percentage of their current customer base takes them up on that offer it can be a really significant add-on to annual recurring revenues and so that was why i was really keen to hear you guys' perspective on how you've introduced that and also just bring up some other examples because i think so much of the time it's funny me saying this being someone that of course, runs paid ads. So that's our number one focus is like, how can we acquire more people? But being a smart marketer and having worked in SaaS companies previously, being like supportive for driving their growth, you really, it it makes so much more sense to focus on what you have available to you already before trying to acquire new fresh people. Because it's so much easier to upsell, like it's so much easier to add on revenue very quickly that way. Another slightly different approach, but. Loom, for example, the like screen recording tool that so many people are using. like it's been free for such a long time now. And then when they introduce their paywall, maybe a couple months ago in the middle of covid they kept free for a while through covid then they introduced a paywall and it was something that made so much sense it was like maybe 5 euros a month or something for us but it made so much sense to just upgrade to that that my pretty much my whole team did and i was thinking wow that one day must have driven millions in sales for them now on a monthly recurring basis and i think that's something that so many marketers or even founders don't think about is, okay, we've spent all of this time acquiring these customers, these users, this interest. What else can we do to to not just maximize our revenue from them, but to provide them with a better experience too? Because as you said, in, in your space where churn is often high, I would imagine, like you wanna be doing everything to minimize that and by providing them with more tools to, to do their job in an easier way, it can be a really fantastic way to minimize churn and increase
1: revenue. It's amazing, so first of all, it- I, I came from this because my background was actually in monetizing existing client bases or expansion techniques. And so I've been doing this for many years and it was it's so clear it's also so much lower risk. So you can experiment without risk. The investment is much lower and all you have to do is figure it out. I think a couple of the, the other key takeaways from this experience as, I, as I'm thinking about it is one is all of the things that we didn't do. So... Our list of different options for what the upsells, cross-sells could be. It was about three pages long. We could do social writing, we could do copywriting, we could do ad distribution, we could create ads. We didn't do any of those. We just tried to stick on the core so that our solution made sense and we're delivering more value to our core constituency. And then we also did raise prices. We realized that our, our product quality couldn't be high enough. There was no demand for a lower value quality, like that there's nobody who wants to do that anymore. And so we needed to pay our writers more in order to get the better writing. And so we, that was the first time we consistently started working on a pricing strategy too, which I'm glad you brought up.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing this too. Cause it's, as we said before we hit record on this, sometimes it can just be one or two. Like if I get some feedback from someone that's listened to this episode, even if five people decide to, okay, I'm going to, adjust my pricing slightly or I'm going to make this one slight change um, or test something out with our current customers rather than new acquisition, it can really impact a lot of people's businesses significantly. So I appreciate you for sharing some of these things. I'm just conscious of having a couple minutes left before we usually start to, to wrap these things up. But I, I know that we both said ahead of time, it's always such a challenge to fit in four years of growth and initiatives and tests into a short period of time. Is there maybe one is there like one more thing that you were like hey i really wanted to make sure i talked about this that we haven't covered
1: up until yeah, this point. Nice. So, the, so phase two and basically it was our opportunity to rebrand as verblio in october of 2018 and i feel like we had to earn that we had to earn that both in economically that we could afford it. And second, we had to have a product that really stood for the new brand promise we wanted to create. I didn't wanna create a brand promise with the old brand. And then was to look at all like to not just double down, but 10X our amount of great content and finding our customers in the right places. Part of that was increasing the quality, decreasing the frequency actually, we went from five times a week down to one to two. And then also was to expand into other channels. So everything about content was all about SEO before. And the audiences have moved that's why we're doing podcasts right now it doesn't have to all be about seo you meet your client where they are and it'll come back to you and even if you can't measure it that's the right way to go so we have gone big and in all of those areas and trying to to expand where our audience is and i think the big lesson there is not just what we did it's to realize how important product is in marketing and it's also to constantly reevaluate what's working as a marketing channel, make it part of your process so that you don't find out two years later that you've been wasting all your time writing five blogs about, you know, what slippers you chose that morning and no longer works.
0: I know you have your own podcast and obviously you're guesting on shows. That's how we ended up here. Like, How often are you doing that and what impact? I, I hate asking what impact has that had because podcasting has such an impact that also can't be directly measured, but I I know that some people listening to this, I often get asked, Hey, should I be experimenting more with podcasts as a channel? We have had two episodes with two different guys on the team at a SaaS business called Bonjuro and funnily enough, we haven't spoke about their podcast guesting strategy on either of those episodes so maybe that could be a third episode but they've guested on i think i can't remember exactly but i think it's like maybe three to five hundred guest appearances that they've done across other shows and that was like a really successful driver for them in of course awareness but also actually business generated as a result and like what's your approach just quickly to to podcasting are you guessing on a lot of shows is it helping you out is it more of a awareness play like how do you see podcasting at the moment for you
1: I feel like this is I feel like modern marketing has really gone back to the original story of brand which is 50% of my marketing is working I just don't know which 50% it's working I've been on 40 shows this year and I've interviewed 40 plus guests on my own show which started up in March I think around the same time as your show so the one thing I know is it's working the second thing I can say is I can't prove it to you <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) You know, fun discussions with your board, Rand Fishkin talks a lot these days about there's an inverse correlation between how effective your marketing is and how much you can measure it. And I believe that's totally true with podcasts. So the tangibles are you get brand impressions every time we publish once a week, everybody sees me in their feed. It's something to publish on LinkedIn. It keeps it active. You're related to these people. They share it with their market this is what used to be partnership marketing. And now it's so easy. You all share with your audience so quickly. It used to be, you wrote a blog together for six months and then wrote an email. It's so alive and engaged. The second piece is that these people think of you, like you think of each other afterwards and you just expand your network. And the third completely intangible way is that I learned so much. It is required market expertise that I digest every week for an hour. I get to ask great questions and I get smarter and then I steal their ideas without even knowing it. And it's all of you who are trying to figure out where's that extra 20% where you learn more about your market comes from. Start a podcast and just ask ask everyone you want to talk to and they will just give you free answers, which is amazing.
0: Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you so much, Steve, for coming on today and kind of sharing sharing some of the initiatives that you've led and, and what you've been working on at Verblio. It's really pleasing to hear of the growth of the business too and to have an open conversation like this with you. So thank you so much for your time. I will make sure, of course, for for anyone listening, they'll be able to find links to like the Verblio site, to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. If unless there's is there anywhere else that you or anything that you want to make people aware of, Steve? Like sometimes people come on and they have something they want to drive people to. Or, uh, I don't know what your approach is, but I know for me when I'm on shows, it's I know if someone needs me, they'll find me, you well know? But
1: cool. Yeah, find, you can find me on LinkedIn at Steve Pockrass. I'd welcome uh, the connection. And then also our podcast is called The Verblio Show and love it if you checked it out.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today, Steve. Thanks so much for having me, Dylan. It's been fun.